Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program, and with me, as always, is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this special Halloween edition of the Pittsburgh Oddcast. And today, we, we decided to bring in a guest, a, uh, a very formidable champion in history, <laughs> uh, Mr. Thomas White. Hey, so, John. hello. Uh, we've... I guess first met, I actually looked at our Facebook, uh, you know, how long we've been friends on Facebook. Sure. Nine years. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, almost a decade. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um, how I first heard about you uh, was you wrote a book called, uh, the the first one that I read about, you You know, was the, uh, was it? Legends and Lore. Legends of, of Lore of Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was like the, the roadmap to to odd pittsburgh you know in a sense to where you were the first one to really start compiling a lot of these strange and unusual stories which have been lost to time and uh first time it's ever really appeared in print you know um and and it was such a inspiration you know for looking beyond you know and digging into so many different stories which you have since put in Many, many other books. How many books have you written so far? In West- I, I just finished my 11th book. Your it's 11th gonna be, book. It's going to be coming out in the spring. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I believe I'm in, what, three? Qu- quite a few of them. Yeah, four, yeah. four or five. Yeah, f- uh, I've mentioned in some of your books, uh, including uh, Haunted Roads of Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then the uh, Supernatural um, Lore of PA. Lore of PA. <laughs> so a lot of uh, very, very cool things that have um, passed through and we share this kind of mutual connection of learning about the bizarre and the unique and the unusual mm-hmm. just history in general let alone yeah. western pennsylvania just because we happen to live here yeah <laughs> and uh we could concentrate on that it's and a weir- uh, it's a weird place too so it is it is so what i want to ask you is uh number one what so your day job other than writing books sure about supernatural lore and folklore what is it that you actually do I have a couple jobs. My main job is I'm the university archivist and curator of special collections at Duquesne University. Um, I'm also an uh, adjunct professor of history there. And at La Roche College, I'm an adjunct professor of history, but I also teach folklore and mythology and a bunch of other stuff out there as well. Wow. <laughs> so. I mean, that's awesome. Uh, and uh, what was your connection like? Why did you decide to not just do history, but the folklore aspect of history? I've always been interested in it. I mean, I, I you know, I, part of it was like my mother was interested in it when I was a kid. And also then like, you know, like when I was like five or six, I forget how old I was, when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I thought, mm-hmm. wow, you can connect this supernatural stuff and history. Of course, it's not actually anything like that, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. you know, it was fun when you're a kid. And I just always had uh, this fascination with the weird aspects of history, the stuff that's unsolved or not quite known and Eventually, when I, I went to school for public history for my graduate degree, but my undergrad, I did a lot of weird stuff like studied apocalyptic movements and cults and things and weird religions. But I, uh, I studied public history, which you know deals with a whole variety of it, like how the public interacts with history and you know what people believe about history. And so uh, I really love folklore, and I just started exploring the real stories behind these places. And for about six years, I worked at the Heinz History Center which was the right, perfect yeah. perfect venue to explore this stuff. I'd hear a legend, I'd go look it up, you know, see what right. was true, what wasn't. You know? Right, right, exactly. I mean, uh, Andy and I, before recording, we were just talking about uh, 
the terminology of uh, revisionist history, mm-hmm. okay, and how there's a negative connotation, I guess, towards that. However, do you believe that people consider history as almost in a religious sense to where it can't be changed? I think some people turn history into, you know, and this is the, the spot where it overlaps with legend, right. you know, and people want to believe certain legends, um, but sometimes what really happens is even stranger and more interesting than the fictional version, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, uh, yeah, you've certainly certainly uncovered that. And so I think people get attached to certain narratives of what happened. And, mm-hmm. uh, and often it's not necessarily completely wrong. It's just that there's they're only seeing a slice of it, you know. Right, And there's right. a lot of other stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'd say, you know, our ultimate goal is to find out the truth behind all these things. And uh, a, a good example of that it was in your Haunted Roads book mm-hmm. uh, where we talked about North Park's Blue Mist Blue Road. Mist Road, yeah. <laughs> you know, the most infamous supernatural tale of the North Hills, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so let's just talk about that road. Like, what's sure. the legend, the original legend behind the road? And then we'll talk about how you break that down and prove legend and myth from reality. Sure. So it has multiple stages of legends and uh, attached to it. So the original legend, as far as we can tell, started in the early 70s. Some people have claimed they remember parts a little earlier, but I can't verify that. So the first legend has two parts. One is that there was a family back. Well, let me preface this for anybody that's not been there. <clears throat> the road's about three miles long. It's really named Irwin Road, and it's on, right on the edge of North Park. Today, most of it's owned by the Allegheny Land Trust, and it's turned into a trail. Part of it's owned by the county. The last section's a neighborhood, but it's about three miles long. About two, two and a half miles is the Blue Mist part. And then at the far end, where it cuts the corner between Babcock Boulevard and 910, and the road is mostly closed now, of course, it was once open, but at the far end of that is a cemetery around 910. And in that cemetery, there's two tombstones that lean toward each other. And one of the original legends was that those tombstones touch under a full moon, because it was a husband and wife. So if you go there under a full moon, you'll see them lean together and touch. The other legend was that a family was driving down there when the road was open one night, and a drunk driver or a deer you know, caused them to go off the road. It wrecked. They were all killed. And um, what happened is supposedly if you found that spot where they wrecked, if you went there and put your car in neutral, their ghost would push your car uphill away from the scene of the accident. So they're kind of harmless ghost stories in the beginning. You know, just (laughs) kind of like fun interaction with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. By the 1970s, though, it changes because then there's a real physical threat and more creepy ghosts. But you have the story of... um, the Ku Klux Klan coming to the road. Now, the Klan, you know, you know, pops up in a lot of legends at this time, but supposedly the Klan was uh, at the road, and uh, they were hanging people at a specific tree called the Hanging Tree. Of you course. Could, you could find that tree if you went out during a full moon, and it would be the tree that was bleeding. Right. You know, there were many trees that hung over the road, so people had different versions of which one it was. Right. <clears throat> but, of course, say you find this tree, you might even see the ghost of the last victim standing there blankly, and then he disappears when you get there. Unfortunately, if you got to that spot, sometimes the clan caught you and then made you the next victim. You know, so that was always mm-hmm. the danger in going to the spot. And there's a famous uh, quasi-urban legend, although I will tell you something new I learned about yeah. this um, after. But the, the urban legend um, is that a couple was driving down the road one night and their car broke down. And the husband got out of the car and looked under the hood and said, I can't fix this. I'm going to go get help. Wait in the car. He walks off into the darkness. The wife waits and waits and waits. Eventually, you know, hours go by. She hears scraping on the top of the car. She gets out. Finally, she works up the courage, gets out, and it's her husband's feet dangling. He's been hung from the hanging tree. That's where the car broke down. 
course, she screams, runs off into the darkness, and is never seen again. At that point, though, you might ask, well, who the hell told the story? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but basically that was the legend for years. Now, if that wasn't enough, this is where the road kind of becomes, I always joke, it's an evil timeshare at this point. <laughs> um, the satanic cults supposedly inhabit the road starting in the 1980s. Legends occur in 1981, then especially by the late 80s. And the story is these satanic cults have moved into the road. And there's a particular set of ruins just off the road that they call the cult house or the witch house. Ironically, it once used to be a Bible camp, but the building collapsed. It was a three-story stone structure, collapsed, and actually it burned in the 70s. But supposedly they'd see these hooded figures up there committing human sacrifices, you know, sacrificing babies or always some kid from another school district. Right. Um, you know, and uh, basically then they would try to scare you off. They might threaten you and tell you never to talk about this, you know. Um, but supposedly they even summoned the devil or a demon, and people would find bipedal hoof prints or occasionally sacrificed animals or people. Right, yeah. I used to hear uh, stories about a half deer, half man. Yes, <laughs> yeah. used to walk around there. I swear, yeah. when I was in high school, you know, walking down, you hear something or see something, you know, in the woods that oh, yeah. it must be the deer man. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing. Something weird happens every time you go down there. Right. Like, no matter what. And so, like, all those legends built. And then by the, two, by the early 90s, you know, I mean, the, the people were afraid of the satanic cults. By the early 90s, um, there was the, the legend of, of the tombstone had changed, and they said the stones didn't touch under the full moon. They were slowly inching closer and closer together, and when they finally did touch, the world would end. And so, um, you know, those legends continue to evolve over time, and variations spread. And there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff, too, that's been ascribed to the road. Right, like, right. Uh, you know, um, but what happened is by the early 2000s, all the ghost hunter shows went on TV. There'd be people out there looking for all of these ghosts, the cult victims, the clan victims, the original ghosts. There are all these layers, and there's always somebody adding something new and weird experiences. Right. <clears throat> so um, for years then, I, I heard these legends. I first heard them in around 1989 <clears throat> or 90. So this was always like my favorite urban legend. That's what I grew up with. Right. So over time, we did research, and actually, you're the one that found the car accident story. Turns out there really was a car accident yeah. uh, that happened on that road that someone did die. In 1973, yeah, yeah right yeah. where it meets meets uh, uh, Babcock, Babcock and Irwin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the mother was killed, and the two children survived in the back. So we, we think that's what inspired the crash story. But the interesting thing about you know the car being pushed uphill, I mean, if people who may be familiar with North Park know there's a gravity hill in North Park. Right. And gravity hills, of course— well, some people argue it's an optical illusion where it looks like you're rolling uphill. There's a couple weird ones around the country. There's a lot of them around the country. There's a couple weird ones that don't seem to be an optical illusion, but that's a whole different discussion. Mm. But there is one at Coomer and McKinney Roads in North Park, and I think what happened in the years before the Internet, you know, now we can just look up and find a location. Back then it was word of mouth in the 70s. Right. You know, your friends told you about a haunted road, car rolls uphill. Coomer and McKinney Road intersection does not look that creepy. However, Irwin Road does. Mm -hmm. And so I think the legend got transferred there. Now, the clan legends pop up in the 70s. And like I said, actually a lot of different sites get clan legends during that time hmm. um, throughout Western PA. And now, of course, the Ku Klux Klan was active in Western PA back in the 20s and 30s. Um, but, and I think you looked as well, we couldn't find any evidence that there was actually a clan meeting in the park. No, or that there were clan meetings in McCandless, yeah, but not, not in, in the, the park. park. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And so, if the timing of that is kind of interesting, because from a folkloric perspective, right, many of these haunted roads are in what folklorists call liminal space, a space of transition. 
and back when these legends started, I mean, Irwin Road was pretty rural. A lot of the North, the North Hills further out than that wasn't really that built up. Mm. And so this was kind of this like weird, creepy road on the edge of like your normal day-to-day world. And that's often where these legends unfold. And so, um, but also by the mid seventies, you might think as a folklorist, I thought, well, how is this, you know, you think clan legends might be connected to civil rights and tensions about civil rights, but you know, a lot of that we think of as in the sixties. But in reality though, it really, a lot of it only rolled out to the outer suburbs by the seventies. And so there's no way to prove it either way, but it seems like it pops up in all those places at the same time. Interesting. Um, and then by the 80s, of course, there's the infamous satanic panic, mm-hmm. um, where, and that's widely documented, where throughout the country there were um, cases of Satanism. There's a famous McMartin preschool case where they tried those poor people that ran that preschool and said they were running a satanic cult. And Geraldo got on TV and said, like, there were like three to six million active Satanists working together. To- oh, oh yeah. cults. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, yeah, don't listen yeah. to Kiss, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. Everybody with an Ozzy Osbourne t shirt on was a Satanist. Right, and, right. Know, so, do you know anything about the midget farms? There is the story of the midget village was another story attached to Blue Mist Road. Right? That, I'm sorry, I'm talking about like Scott Township, Bridgeville area. I haven't heard of it there, but see, many of those. Like supposed they call them the midget villages and midget towns. There was one associated with Bloomist Road for a point, and w- one of the things that happened with that is that um, out in the eastern PA there was actually a town built back in the forties, and I can't think of the exact location, but it was for like circus performers, a lot of the the, the dwarves and, and people that they would call midgets, right. who were retired circus performers. When they cracked down on the freak shows and circuses, many of them became unemployed. So. There was a whole group of them that moved in and kind of built things to scale for this little town out in wow. eastern PA. And Smallville, PA. Yeah, and it, <laughs> yeah. it inspired like yeah. all these legends that somewhere out there there was this village. Well, see, that's what I find fascinating about what you do is the fact that you take legends, mm-hmm. okay, of a supposed a supposed haunted road, mm-hmm. haunted in quotation. You know, I'm doing yeah. air quotes. <laughs> so yeah. the, uh, because what you soon find out uh, is that these same legends. Re- reappear on other roads yeah and that it's not unique to blue mist road no and that that's just one of a hundred you know other types of roads yeah. although the what i find fascinating about what you do is the how you look into the origin of the each and every one of these legends that are added upon each one of these tales and it's like playing a giant game of telephone yeah. Uh, to where, you know, there's an initial crash that happens, like, you know, in 1953 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like, it becomes, you know, the hanging tree and yeah. blue magical mist and deer men, you know, yeah. wandering yeah. around and satanic cults. So it's like, how does how does one go, um, how, how does one take a normal everyday incident mm-hmm. and how does that become legend? I think often, like, the, the, the incidents become legend. Um, if you look at things different ways, let me, let me pre, uh, kind of preface this by saying you know ghost stories and legends uh do a variety of things right and and i'm not a disbeliever in the supernatural i mean i've had plenty of weird stuff happen to me over the years but you know every ghost story is a form of history it may not be factually accurate all the time but some kernel of truth is there something inspired that you know And, and if they're not if it's an urban legend every urban legend carries some kind of moral warning now whether it's a correct moral warning or not it's carrying someone's moral warning so these legends serve a purpose. So I think anything that taps into those purposes, like the history, for example, I always give this example. If you look at like Pennsylvania ghost stories from like the 1800s, right? 
like 60 or 70 percent of the ghosts are women. Mm-hmm. Then like the other 30 percent are like African-Americans or immigrants. Right? Mm-hmm. You almost never, unless they're famous, and it, there's a few exceptions to this, don't get me wrong, but you almost never see like white Protestant lawyer ghost. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah. I'm always waiting for the Buddhist ghosts yeah, you know, to yeah, show up. Yeah. So, <laughs> but if you look at, you know, history mm-hmm. at that time, you know, often like women were recorded as like Mrs. John Smith. And right. you don't even see their first oh, yeah. name, you know, but if something happened to them tragic or there was some event, the way they could be remembered is through the ghost story. Mm-hmm. And folklore is like an alternate form of history in the community. You know, it carries whatever right. is loaded with meaning in the community gets communicated through the, through the ghost story or the legend. That's interesting to think about, like how uh, all legends mm-hmm. continue that same way, and how they they're meant to be their folklore as a as a lesson, as a moral yeah. fable, mm-hmm. um, and to where you can learn from it in multiple ways. Whether you know, and I do find just as I'm sure you do mm-hmm. that talking about the odd, bizarre, you know, the bizarre, the mysterious, weird stuff gets people interested. Whether you know, I'm not talking about really anything odd. It's all fascinating. Yeah, and so it's like. It's unusual, yeah, but like that, it's a way to bridge the gap between academic, like reading it from a book, you know, sure. to to making it real. And uh, I think the le- the legends of things like North Park and all these other you know legends that exist yeah. out there really help um, portray a time in history, yeah. uh, eras in history, and like the or in how like a wicked game of telephone. They they expand, and I'm sure yeah. they're continuing to this day. I, I'm oh, curious. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard new legends about Blue Mist Road? Well, the interesting thing is um, I've heard new, and I've heard things about the old legends, right? So new things actually happen. I take my I teach a folklore class at LaRoche, and I actually take my class out there, right? And every time we go out there, something happens, and it's weird. Because one time we were out there, we were halfway back at the most remote part of the road. You may be familiar with it. Like, you're about right in the middle. Down in the marshy area, like and it, I would have had a hard time getting mm-hmm. down there, and my students would have had a hard time getting down there. It's dark, you know. We're walking back because I always time it so we get to the end of the road and the sun goes down, so they've come all the way back in the dark. Right, yeah. nice. <laughs> so, but suddenly we hear the splashing. Right, we shine our flashlights down down in Irwin Run, the creek, and uh, we see this dog running back and forth like a broken record in the creek. We're like, that's weird. Then we're thinking, does that thing have rabies or something? So we can't see any collar. Right, no, right. It's, it's dark, so maybe. We realize there's feet there, right? And we shine the light and bring the flashlight up, and there's these two, this old couple standing down there. And like the American Gothic painting, <laughs> right. perfectly still, no yeah. sign of light, no flashlights, nothing. We shine the light, and they're not moving. And then after a while, it's like one of the, the guy just says, and he, he barely reacts. He says, can you please turn out the light? <laughs> You know, so we hurried up shut off the light and just took off down the road as right, fast as we right. could. You know, but yeah. like maybe that was just a really ambitious older couple, like, you know, way more ambitious than I would be walking my dog, you know? But right. But um the middle of the dark yeah, on yeah. a haunted road. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So but you know, it now that's like a story, you know. Right. That's that, yeah. that is now an event, whether it was supernatural or just like, you know, something something normal. And so these things build and people tell them. Um I think sometimes a site gets a little burnt out. I, I don't think there's going to be major new legends at Blue Mist Road now, but yeah. you know you'll have other new legends that pop up or ones that change over time. The interesting thing is I got information, um, and I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to reveal who this was, but let's just say from a former McCandless cop that there was in fact a true incident based on that car, oh. and that um, a woman was found in a car. She didn't die, but the husband was found hung in the woods. Mm. It was never reported because they couldn't. Prove it wasn't suicide, but he didn't. Leave right. The, he didn't leave the car with a rope. 
Oh, weird. And so they yeah. thought it was kind of weird. You <laughs> that know, is weird. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so, but again, I can't, you know, it, there's, there's still things that can't be a hundred percent verified oh, yeah. there. So it's, it just adds those layers. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. it's kind of, it, to bring back your, your point, you're saying how uh, a majority of these ghost tales mm-hmm. are, um, based around women. Uh, a prime example would be someone like Martha Grinder. Like, Nobody would know her name if it yeah. wasn't for the no, number one. She did kill people, yeah. But the legends that are attached to this killing of her yeah. and the, her return, <laughs> yeah, from the grave yeah. you know, that yeah. happens years later, um, it's like a name that would just be a blip in history, yeah. Um, so I think the importance of telling these types of stories is unmatched, yeah. yeah. Sure. And there's like one of my favorites that show how a legend can can adapt a little bit. There's this bridge in Northern Beaver County called Summit Cut Bridge, right? Mm. It's supposedly haunted by a lady in white. Mm-hmm. And originally the bridge was just a really terrible one lane wooden bridge the railroad had to put up in the 1890s they cut the community in half up there <clears throat> but it was like a hard right angle onto this bridge with no real guide rail so mm-hmm. you can imagine you know i found that well the legend was that this late that years ago this woman's car went off the bridge and wrecked if you drive on that bridge now and this is in the 50s and 60s when this was told that if you drive on that bridge you'll see the woman in white you might see this woman appear and she's waving her arms and you think she's trying to help you you know, watch out, but she's actually trying to make you go off the road too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when I did my research and I had some other people help me, a good uh, friend of mine, Aaron Carson actually found a bunch of these, these things when I was looking for these. Um, but there were at least 10 accidents there where people plunged off that bridge. Wow. And one was like a, a woman in, alone in a car that fit the ledger, but then there were a couple of couples and the, the children, the alts were, went off the bridge and their, uh, children's estate sued the, the railroad and the state to widen the bridge, and they Jeez. did. Wow. But there were still accidents. Right? right, yeah. But eventually they tore it down and built a concrete one, like, with a much more gradual bend, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's much safer now than it used to be. So the legend is now, ironically, the legend, you know, most of the people that heard the legend were, like, told by parents or older brothers or siblings. Mm-hmm. But really that legend also told you to slow down when you got to that bridge because it was right. dangerous, you know. But now the legend, because the bridge is safe, has weirdly evolved into this thing where the legend is now, if you want to see the lady in white, you you stop your car in the middle of the bridge and shut your lights out, which is highly, extremely dangerous. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Then you turn them back on, she's there. You mm-hmm. know? Um, you know, so it's kind of the opposite effect of what the original ghost story did. You know? Well, you, you mentioned, and I've heard you talk before, about the, the legend trip. Yes. And, and uh, can you explain what that is and, and how that's um, almost goes back to the beginning of humankind i mean uh, yeah. you know these uh rites of passage i guess you could say almost you know um where it really gets its origin yeah and, and basically that's kind of like a mod legend trip is what the term that's been ascribed by originally by folklorists and has been adopted pretty widely um for the process of ostention basically acting out a legend essentially so you travel and we all we all know this and we've all done this at least most of us you travel to an allegedly haunted location, say Green Man's Tunnel in South Park. Mm-hmm. You drive up to Green Man's Tunnel, and you've heard that you have to come there during a lightning storm. Maybe it's a, there's a lightning storm that night. And you pull up into the tunnel, and you have to call his name three times, or, or you say, you know, flash your lights three times to provoke a supernatural. Basically, there's a ritual, and it often involves a car or a piece of electronics, too. Mm-hmm. And then it provokes a reaction, and then by that point, the green man supposedly appears. But usually, like, a, somebody makes a, there's a noise in the woods. Everyone screams and runs away, you know? Right. But now you tell the legend. You're a part of it as you tell it because um, something's happened. But really, like, on the way to that legend, there's a buildup. People exchange stories. So there's an escalating tension that increases all the way till you get to the point 
where you actually perform the ritual, whatever it is. Usually it's like you do something three times or, or you have to put your car keys on the hood somewhere so you mm. can't immediately flee. You know, right. so it's, it's <laughs> right. a little bit dangerous, you know, right. supposedly dangerous. But it's like a test of bravery. But also, you know, there's all different things going on there. Often there's different kids. There's, there's kids that are skeptics. And mm. it's not just kids. I mean, on one level, ghost hunting is a legend trip, mm-hmm. you know, like modern ghost hunting. You know, you're just using more more uh, equipment for your interaction. But it's all the same. You're trying to interact with ghosts using some kind of, it's not as much of, I mean, it is a ritual on one level. You know, you, you try to get them to respond to something, and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, so it, it's like one of those things where, where you're trying to provoke a supernatural response, and uh, but it, it makes everyone part of the legend. You get to be part of the legend when you tell it again. Yeah, how cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. it's a legendary. So when you think back to uh, Western Pennsylvania history, and um, what are some of the earliest ghost stories that you've heard of or come across in Western PA? You know, but now, now this is the wilderness, of course, you know, going yeah. back to the 1750s. Yeah. And were there Native American legends and lore and then did that translate into europeans believing these legends there are native legends what traditionally what i've done is the the trouble with native i mean there's like stories of you know uh like indian curses and things but the problem when you you analyze native legends is they're complex because they're always through the lens of some european you know Mm -hmm. what i mean who may or may not have been understanding them or just like he's practicing sorcery he's a witch you know (laughs) right yeah um so there, there are stories. I mean, there's there's colonial era ghost stories, um, but some of the native ones. I mean, there's things you know, like a little further north in Western PA, there's an occasional nod to the Wendigo or things like that. You mm-hmm. know, the, the cannibalistic spirit of the Algonquins. You know, there's stories. I mean, you've looked in the story like this tales of the giants and things. They're not really yeah. ghost stories, but they're right. they're you know stories of these these very large these people. legends. Yeah, do you believe that like um, when it's all said and done that Telling these legends and lore um, is a good thing, and it's kind of like what makes up the fabric of history is these in-between bits that we call. I think it depends. You know, it's gonna each one's gonna stand on its own. I mean, right. it, it never hurts to get people. I always say ghost stories are a good way to trick people into learning about history. Right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's what I do. Like people, I, I do get emails every once in a while that people are like, "I can't believe you're talking about ghosts or whatever." I'm like. It's not about ghosts, you know. Yeah. Yes, it's about a ghost, you sure, know. But right. I'm tell- I'm trying to explain this history behind the real legend, you know, yeah. that, that uh, for a, a good example, and we might as well, you know, bust everyone's bubble. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about the Congley Air Mansion. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the world's most famous haunting, apparently, right, that yeah. Thomas Edison himself invented a ghost-busting machine <laughs> and yeah. showed up to the north side to try to, like, <laughs> bust some ghosts on Ridge Avenue, yeah. uh, which apparently turns out the did not have one shred of well, I mean, well, loot. The, the, well, that's what we'll talk about. So, okay, like, sure. it's, so the story yeah. is, you know, the story is that you know, there's a couple stages to it. Once that you know, the, the Conglier family moved in around 1870. This is the story that, that around 1870 that they were uh, had been carpetbaggers in the South, came back. Mister Conglier also brought a new maid who he was having an affair with. The wife found out, cut off their heads. You know, normal response, and then. Right. She was found sitting on a rocking chair, in a rocking chair on the porch with one of the heads, you know. And so she was deemed insane and, and sent away. A few years later, some railroad workers use it, and uh, a few of them get killed in the basement. One is hung, the other is impaled on a floorboard, supposedly. But in around 1900, this guy, supposedly named Dr. Adolf Brunerichter, moves in, and he does all kinds of strange experiments. Uh, and electricity arcs off the house, even though it's not wired yet. It's a gas house, you know, gas, gas mm-hmm. light. 
And uh, eventually, after a couple of years, there's a weird explosion in the house, and then the fire department shows up, and he's nowhere to be found. But they find journals saying that he was cutting off heads and trying to keep severed heads alive, and they found these women buried in the basement. And, of course, then there's a few other tales of hauntings. And eventually, Brunerica resurfaces in the 20s in New York, supposedly, and he's insane in a jail cell. And he uh, he tells him he had killed, you know, killed these people, and he starts talking about cults and everything and the devil and... Uh, he writes, supposedly writes in his own blood on the wall, what Satan hath wrought, let man beware. Well, and, of course, he disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, they let him go because they can't hold him because they can't prove anything. And uh, a few days later, the is the giant gas explosion on the north side, which destroys the Conglier house. Only, you know, yeah, I, I hear yeah. stories about it. It was only that <laughs> yeah, house. Only like, that house. Yeah, yeah. Something. And, uh, you know, and so that's supposed to be like the most haunted haunted house in America. The thing is, like you know, and as you know, there really was the gas tank explosion, and there really was a Conglier family, and there was one victim, one victim that wasn't a worker, and it was Marie Conglier, right. who got caught in the neck with a piece of flying glass and bled out. Now that yeah. was much later than the eighteen seventies, and she even died at the hospital, yes. not at yeah. the house at all. Yeah, you know? it wasn't in the street; yeah, they right. died at the hospital. Um, so it's one of those things where, like, there was a shred of truth to it. Now, something I always thought was interesting, I think maybe the Dr. Brunrichter legend might actually be tied to something else you came up with. It was a little further up the road, the Bellevue Mystery House. Yeah, yeah. And that maybe something of that, because it's really not that far away, may have inspired right. the, you know, women the bodies in the basement. Doctors. Yeah, doctors. Know, double doing things boilers like or yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, killing can, can you review the Bellevue Mystery? Yeah, the Real Be- quick. Yeah, Bellevue Mystery House is uh, a house of ill repute, they say, uh, or uh, a makeshift hospital that was located on Riverview Avenue in Bellevue. Uh, which was a real was a real thing yes, in a real yes. place, and yeah. uh, these incidents apparently happened there. At least they were able to prove at least two, but they don't yes. know how many countless other ones that might have been fell victim to this uh, crazed doctor named Doctor C.C. Meredith and his uh, nurse. They called him uh, who went by many aliases. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, the house uh, was raided, and they, they confessed to uh, accidentally killing people. I, I don't yeah. know, accidentally, you know murder people but they uh <laughs> they, they found like women's jewelry and fur coats and different pairs of shoes and uh, and most unusually uh oh you hair, different wigs of different human hair yeah <laughs> so uh, and then they actually exhumed bodies from cemetery lane cemetery yeah. and found out that indeed one of the people they buried under a false name was one of these people that were murdered in the house yeah um and uh they kind of got off scot-free uh oddly enough that guy died in his 80s yeah, you know, yeah. Um, you know, in, like in California, went the farthest away you could get Possibly from Pittsburgh. Get, yeah. But uh, but explain the uh, double furnace. Yeah, he, they had double boilers and furnaces in the uh, basement where they would uh, one would be to heat the house, the other one would be to cremate. Yeah, their victims, <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, because a lot of people were last seen going into this house and never to be seen again, including a very famous uh, perfume heiress yeah. uh, named Dorothy Arnold. But that's a, a story for another day. Ch- check out their true crime episode sure. if you want to hear more about that but the story about how a true crime like that mm-hmm. uh could evolve into a legend i'd always found fascinating and, and and that's really what you are an expert at is the how a, a wild story like this that people have forgotten has now yeah. turned into like this ghost tale uh that has nothing to do with the original story but was loosely kind of based in truth and that Conglier mansion is the perfect example of how in reality, we can look at property records, you yeah. know, we can look at maps, we can see, you know, uh, who did live there, who didn't live there, and, and uh, 
at even the origin of that story, which comes from a book, a paperback book written in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just haunted houses in general, where somebody basically just seems like they just made up the story. Yeah, yeah. Or they asked if they had a source, they must have just asked some random person who <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> substantially embellished it. But. Somehow they knew the name Conglier, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the that's why of the I, house. I, that's why I always suspect that, like, maybe some of those others, like, somebody had vaguely remembered pieces of these various stories and just kind of combined it all to a nice tale, you know? Yeah. yeah so, so, so fascinating. So, what, what tales are you disturbed by <laughs> when you come across them that you see that this might actually be. There might be some real truth behind some of these legends, or uh... I've been to a lot of places that are pretty, pretty creepy. Um, uh, some of them, like some of the things I've dealt with, that I, I can't really, I'm not at liberty to talk about. But I've like encountered some like poltergeist cases and things where like they're really kind of, or I've even seen things, you know, that, that are, are weird. But even those, like they border on, you know, at some point you have to kind of not even always trust yourself in those cases. Um, I don't know. There's some that, 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 uh, like the Quaker church in Fayette County, right? Uh, they, they call it a Quaker church. It's a Quaker meeting house, but everyone in the urban, le- the, the urban legend is the haunted Quaker church north of Periopolis. Now, let me preface this by saying a lot of people have damaged that church over the years, so please don't go there and you will be arrested. They watch that church every day, but in the seventies and eighties and early nineties, it was a big legend trip destination. Um, and I know it's, you know, probably fine, but there's supposedly a cursed tombstone there that says, remember youth as you go by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be prepared for death and follow me, hmm. which was actually an old funerary inscription from like the 1680s, 1690s. Right, right. But, you know, if you're a teenager in the 70s, you see that it looks pretty creepy, like a curse. Mm-hmm. But supposedly people would touch it and bad things would happen. Like hmm. I know of people that, you know, went there and the next day their car caught on fire and then another guy's dog died you know <laughs> and uh, you know other people have like um you know had terrible things happen it's supposed to be guarded by a, a phantom black dog and i just talked to someone about two weeks ago that that uh, had an encounter with that black dog at that cemetery wow um but that's one of the few places where i go and i get a bad gut feel like Mm. You, you know, I don't want to stay there. You know, mm. like sometimes you get a, you know, and I'm pretty skeptical, obviously, you know, like right. debunk this stuff. But every <laughs> once you get to a place and you're like, yeah, something's not right and I just want to leave. You mm. know? And that, that's happened. Interesting. But, um, you know, there's some places I find very interesting. Like one, one of my all time favorite ghost stories is because uh, it's variety, it's interesting on a variety of levels because it does feel like, I always feel like there's something going on there. But it also is interesting from a folklore perspective. Uh, the Black Cross in, Beaver, or Butler County, West Winfield. It marks a mass grave um, in Butler County that was um, uh, basically influenza victims at the end of World War I, right? Mm-hmm. And these were all mostly like Italian immigrants and maybe a few Slovak, Slovak immigrants and, uh, or Slavic immigrants thrown in. But they were a community that basically came over via tra- chain migration. But it, the process was disrupted a bit by World War I. So a lot of these people that were in that area had no family members. You know, it was just like one or two people. And, um, you know, when the f- Spanish flu came by, that killed a lot of people. I think the official number for Allegheny County is only like five or 6,000, but it's actually double that because about half the people that had it were supposedly died of pneumonia because mm. it turned your lungs against you and killed young, healthy people. Right. So if it's like October 1918 and you see some some 20-year-old dies of pneumonia, he probably has the Spanish flu. Mm. <clears throat> so anyway, in the, it around... Uh, in that area, in Butler, that like from about Butler over to West Winfield, there were about 300 people that died, including a bunch of these miners, right? There's nobody to bury them. They had to hurry up and do something. 
most people don't realize there were mass graves all over Western PA during this time. Right. And so that, that was a spot where they, they set aside some property on the edge, which is now cement company property, but it, it's still a grave. Um, and they were just going to make a mass grave. And they're supposed to put five bodies per grave. And the guys that dug the first hole, so they put about 20 in. Wow. And then there were still more down the hill. People think there's only one grave. There's more in the woods behind it. They're just not marked. Jeez. But the first grave was marked by a big black cross because they got a priest from Coilsville to come over since they were all Italian Catholics to have a funeral mass. They weren't going to mark the grave at all. So he put this big black cross there. So for a generation or two, it was left alone. You know, it was a pretty somber thing. But after World War II, you know, teenagers have access to cars for the first time, uh, at least on a regular basis. They have free time for the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. spending money. And that's when a lot of the teenagers really start going on legend trips. They really start going out to these places. And of course, up in that area, they hear about the mass grave, you know. And the story was that you'd get, you'd get close to it. And it's only about, you know, 150 feet off the road, but you had to know where it was. Mm-hmm. Like, otherwise, you would never find it back then. So they'd go back to it, and supposedly, like, the, the trees would start to kind of reach in or creep in at you, right? They'd get closer and closer. And then in uh, under a full moon, you might hear babies crying. You know, you might hear, like, crying either from the grave or for their parents. But the part that really gets me is it makes it one of my favorite stories is that when you get there, you get really close to the ground. And it's always really quiet there for some reason. I don't know why. It's really quiet. You get really close to the ground. Supposedly, you can hear them speaking hmm. in Italian. You know, Ooh, it's like that's you watch all these shows yeah. and like this. They're in a 500-year-old German castle and the ghost is speaking to them in like modern slang, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these ghosts are speaking the right language, you know? Right. And people for years have supposedly heard this in a big legend trip destination. Of course, the cross got kind of vandalized and it fell down eventually. It's hard to find. In fact, I once talked to uh, a, a reporter for the Butler Eagle who went there in the 70s, and she went down with her friends, and uh, they, they, like, pulled up in a van. They went down in there, and, like, when they got down there, like, everything went quiet. Not quiet as in, like, quiet. Like, quiet as there was no sound even when they were speaking. There was Whoa. no sound. Yeah. You know, clap your hands, no sound type thing, and they ran out of there. Um and the sound came back when they got up to the road. You know, so weird stuff would happen. Hmm. But this was an interesting uh, case of, like, a, a, how a legend can evolve. Because a lot of legends died out in the pre... you think the internet would hurt urban, hurt legends, like, word of mouth, but it actually saves them. Mm-hmm. Well, you actually brought up how once teenagers after World War II got access to, to drive, yeah. they could find these places. Mm-hmm. And my question is, were they always, like, kind of haunted or... And then once people started showing up, was it kind of like, oh, this is what's happening? Or were they just kind of spooked and that became how they entertained themselves? Well, I guess that would depend on whether you believe in ghosts. Or... Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the, those things where, you know, I mean, I don't know. The Part of the problem is when you're researching a legend that old, like, there's not many people around that remember, like, the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And the Black Cross. Mm. In fact, what, what, I was, uh, what I'm going to say is, like, for a while it almost died out, that legend. And this is why the Internet can help and so, sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so, like, by the 80s and 90s, not a lot of people knew that legend. Occasionally they talk about it up there. But, <clears throat> excuse me, it was hard to find. And when I really first started to do this stuff, like, hardcore in, like, the late 90s, I heard there was a mass grave in Butler. I heard it was marked by a Black Cross. That was it. Like, it's a, Butler's a big county, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and I never would have looked in West Winfield. 
But, uh, you know, so for years I was looking for this thing. And then I used to watch, you know, all the time. I used to follow back in the early days of the internet, all the different listservs and things that talked about ghosts and legends and nothing, you know. But then, uh, remember in 2004 and 2005, when we were all going to die of bird flu and swine flu. And that's when they put all those antibacterial dispensers everywhere, even though the flu is a virus. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Somebody made a lot of money on that. (laughs) But, um, Purell. (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, the thing is, you know, what happened though is like, I remember reading different online articles about that. And, uh, you know, the reality is the flu can mutate anytime. I mean, it's not just that, you know, but, um, Somebody in one of the and I to this day I wished I had printed it out because all a lot of those old articles the comments didn't get saved and, and somebody in a comment thread it, it was either I think it was the Post Gazette or the Tribune Review mentioned the Black Cross in the mass grave and then people started saying oh yeah that place is supposed to be haunted it's up near it's up off of Cornetti Road suddenly all the information started to appear right and so other people repeated it in other places within like two years that was all over the internet again. Like, the whole legend came back. Every ghost hunting group was going out there, you know. It's suddenly like like this. It was almost gone. Like, legends have, like, a half-life. If you don't capture them at the right point, they vanish. Like, I have mm-hmm. a bunch of old ghost stories from the early 1800s that have almost nothing. They're like what they call a kernel narrative. You know, it's like three lines. Mm-hmm. This house was haunted. It was owned by Joe Smith, you know. like Right. Um, but that kind of revived the legend. Um, you know, it's interesting, like when I did my Bloomist Road research, like <clears throat> once like Facebook groups started popping up, like mm-hmm. even like some of your groups and other ones, like, you know, people chime in and tell their version of the story. But like, oh, yeah, when I was in high school in 1979, we did this. When I was in high school in 1985, we heard this. When I was in high school in 1995, we heard this. Suddenly you get a chronological record of the legend unfolding, you know, like you can you can see all the pieces. And then mm-hmm. you do a little more research and stuff and interview some people and it helps you map it out. No, it doesn't always work, but it can be helpful. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to, to bring up the internet and the legend of ghosts and tales, you know, I think we've talked about it once before with the uh, the Buddhist theology of the tulpa, you know, yeah. and uh, whether that's real or not, you know, that's up for you to, to believe. <laughs> um, however, um, well, can you explain that real quick? Yeah, so um, the the legend of the, the tulpa is a psychological phenomenon, almost of the uh, believing in a entity like a visible friend or whatever yeah. so much so that you can manifest them outside of your own mind yeah. yeah and if enough people believe in something it could be uh, essentially true like candy man or bloody mary <laughs> right yeah, yeah. or slender man and that's what i was getting to and that's what i was getting to was an actual legitimate case of of a story that was on purpose Fake. You know, fake. Yeah, yeah it's fake. And and how the dangers of a, a ghost tale could lead to actual murder, or you yeah, know, yeah. and um, so do you believe that's a reality? Have you seen that in other cases where people start believing something that was so blatantly not true? It's interesting. It's hard to tell why they're going to believe certain things because, like, other things pop up and they're debunked almost instantly. Like that whole what was it, the Momo thing, the thing with the big yeah, eyes. You yeah, know? Yeah, like, I was around for like three days. Oh, my kids were terrified. Yeah. Like three days later, it was debunked. It was yeah. like really. I was kind of almost disappointed. As from a folklore perspective, I wanted to see where that was going to go. Well, that's a prime example of things like Blue Mist Road. You know, like that was just your your by word. Yeah. By word of mouth, strictly. Yeah. Uh, a, a legend that's passed down. Whereas today, you could have a. It's the dangers, really, of the internet. So yeah, yeah. How you can have um, completely yeah. made up. In fact, I've I've toyed with the idea of completely making up a story, 
uh, of a bizarre and unusual fashion to see how far I could go. And have you ever thought about this <laughs> or done it? I've thought about it. I've never done it, but you know, yeah. Uh, should I, do I, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah. But then somebody might end up dead. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. the craziest yeah. thing is yeah. because in this day and age, yeah. that could really happen. Yeah. And um, and it's that's the craziest thing about the supernatural is how it could actually, in essence, become reality. Where yeah. that Slenderman, as if he does exist, you know whether it's you believe in it or not you know it comes down to belief and most ghosts you don't have to believe in they're gonna yeah show up you know yeah and uh enough people believe it it could become true and that's essentially what a kind of it's a loose interpretation of what a tulpa is because tulpa is more than that no, but that's that's exactly what happens and that's how all this i mean that's how all this has always worked there's always people that believe the urban legend you know but then occasionally the sometimes you're never sure like i'm aware of an actual person that had you know, ever the famous um urban legend of like the body in the mattress right well i know of someone who i've actually i met when i was a kid that that happened to there was a body in their mattress at the hotel wow. you know, it's a weird smell and you know but was the legend around first and gave somebody an idea or did you know or is it just a coincidence you know like you don't you know yeah so yeah. some of these things are in this gray area even so, even led like panics that come back around like the evil clown panic mm-hmm. like in 2016 well there's an yeah. evil, evil clown panic in 1981 in pittsburgh yeah Exactly. Yeah, a clown in the woods, and it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. well, hey, it just came out yeah. again. Like, mm-hmm. how is this yeah. right? No, no, no. Legitimately, you do have some weirdos. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> well no. This, yeah. This that's time the there thing. were actually people. Yeah. In eighty one, there wasn't, but in eighty one, it was. Uh, there, there, people were seeing these clowns everywhere. I heard there were superheroes too. Yeah. There, there was, people dressed yeah. as Spider Man. People in a bunny suit, a gorilla, and people like they were seeing them. Bunny suit would be weird. Yeah, all over the place. Allegheny Cemetery and Arlington, uh, all these places. And here it was part of a panic because this happened in St. Louis and Boston at the same time. And what it was is like after the first report, which turned out to be false, it was two kids that were late coming home and they made up a story about the, the clown, the Spider-Man and the gorilla in a van trying to kidnap them. One of these concerned parents put a flyer all around, started making flyers and put them around Pittsburgh and it fueled the panic. And at the bottom of the flyer it said, don't let this be another Atlanta. Well, in 1981, where the Atlanta, the Atlanta child murders were going on, Right, and a lot of this happened in African American neighborhoods in '81, and that was you know a lot of African American children were being killed in Atlanta, and they weren't sure how he was doing it at the time. They thought one of the ways was he was dressing up like a costume character, and it's interesting that that manifested in three different cities at the same time. Hmm. But it was this reaction to this fear of a real threat down in Atlanta. But it was still the media, like even though it wasn't 24 hour cycle, it was still the six o'clock news or you know the national news at for a half hour. And people probably heard about it, and then yeah. it, it spread that way. Yeah, I mean, they heard about the Atlanta child killer. The The interesting thing, though, is the clown, the 81 clown panic didn't spread through the media. Actually, the media actually stopped it for once. That was one oh. a reporter at the Pittsburgh <laughs> right. Press investigated it, and he talked to the police chief, and after his article ran, the report stopped. Hmm. But um, but basically, but everybody was hearing it, but it was all secondhand, you yeah. know. But it spread through the kids. It spread through like the the grade well, like school that, yeah, like that yeah. Momo thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, like you know, I didn't know what it was until like mm-hmm. kids start coming. Like they're horrified to go to bed because they saw this, heard about this legend of this thing that which was not real. And I had the the opportunity to kind of kick kick it right in the butt, you know, right yeah. as soon as it happened, and tell them like, look, you know, you could just do a reverse image search yeah. and figure it out yourself, and explain that you have to question everything. And um, it, all these legends and all these ghost tales, um, you can't take them. I, I teach that to my kids, you know, that you can't take them as truth. Yeah. 
you have to seek out the truth yourself. If they're sure, there's plenty of things that are completely unexplainable, and weird things do happen. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, however, you know, um, hopefully you approach it with a scientific mind, and not necessarily a uh, uh, like a, a believe whether choosing to believe in it or not. It's not a yeah. choice of belief. It's whether it's real or not. I think the thing is when you're in that moment, and you're in a situation where you know, you've heard about ghost stories and you happen to be in like North Park yeah. on Gravity Hill, your emotions get the best of you. Mm-hmm. Even though you're trying to think about it scientifically, you're in the moment, oh, it's yeah. dark. Yeah. Oh, you might, you're, you're so mind, mind, yeah, it's and that makes it fun, but at right. the time, you might be yeah. terrified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it's intentional suspension of belief, too. Like, you kind of know, but still, like, you're mm-hmm. open to weird stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, you know, that is part of the fun. Part of it is just fun, like you said. Right. Like, a lot of people just do it for entertainment. Then something, they really do get creeped out because something happens. And who knows? I mean, we're, creepy stuff happens. But, um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where, you know, most of the time it's harmless. Occasionally it spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it depends. But, again, like you were saying, you know, a lot of it's belief. You know, like, there's that whole concept of voodoo death, right? Where mm-hmm. if you believe you're cursed then you are cursed, you know. Right. That's basically how folk magic works. One of my books was on witchcraft in Pennsylvania. Yeah, tell me yeah, tell me about um tell me about that because I, I as, as people might not know. Yeah. They're what you would really call call witches or yeah. you know, warlocks and witch doctors that really did live in Western Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, there's in fact yeah. my next book is on the Witch of the Monongahela. It's called well, Witch of the Monongahela Folk Magic in Early Western Pennsylvania. My other book was uh Witches of Pennsylvania Cult History and Lore. And that basically was a survey of witchcraft beliefs in Pennsylvania. When can we expect this new book? That should probably be in, in, in the spring. I don't have an exact release date yet. It's at the publisher right now. And how can we get a hold of these books? They're, all my books are on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, they're available through the publisher, Arca- or the History Press, Arcadia. Uh, they used to be separate. Now they merged. Um, uh, and, and like through um, a lot of bookstores and places. Okay. They yeah, have them in Giant Eagle sometimes. Giant Eagle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. So the uh, the witches, you know, people don't realize they think of, like, witchcraft in Salem. People only know about that because they killed their witches. I mean, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania has more cases of witchcraft than almost any other state. West Virginia <laughs> has a lot. Maryland has a lot. The Appalachians have a lot, right? Because it was this system of folk belief. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you had the folk healer. You know, we all, we've probably all encountered this, even in the form of an old wives' tale, as this survived, but the folk healing is on one end. And often that's very religious folk healing. You know, it's mm-hmm. done in a religious context. But, of course, if you have supernatural good, then you have to have supernatural evil. So on the other end is the witch, right? And I'm not talking about, like, modern Wicca movements or anything. Right. I'm talking about, like, traditional folk belief in folk healing and witchcraft from Europe. And like, in Pennsylvania, it's especially well documented, documented among the Germans, the Pennsylvania Dutch. They had, like, the hex doctors and what they called the powwowers were the folk healers, not to be confused with Native American powwow. But essentially they'd use, like, uh, they believed in then that the far end was the witch, right? And so mag- folk magic was um, essentially, they, be- they believed that evil was in some sense contagious uh, or-, or could be transferred to people, but then it could be transferred away. Like, for example, you know, and all illness and bad luck came from some form of evil. So, for example, like the famous old wives' tales, like say you have a wart, right, and you're supposed to rub a potato on it. Mm-hmm. The full ritual is like you say in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit three times. You rub the potato after you slice it in half. Then you take the potato and you either bury it to symbolically eliminate it and then as it decomposes, the wart disappears, or you toss it into running water, or you feed it to swine. Just don't eat that swine later. Don't turn that into your bacon. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But um, some warty bacon. It'll <laughs> save your bacon. <laughs> but you know the thing is, then they would believe essentially you're transferring the evil out of the wart into this other object. It's basically the voodoo doll principle, right? It just mm-hmm. you transfer it into something else and make it go away. But then you can use other things to represent things. You know, they used to make witch bottles to turn uh, uh, curses on witches. You know, um, I should add the interesting thing is potatoes won't necessarily remove warts, but they do sometimes remove skin tags. Hmm. And so, like, back in the 1800s, there was no differentiation between the two. Right. So it did work. And that's the thing with all of it. If you believe it, it works way more than it should. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the magic is kind of real then. You know what I mean? Like right. It's one of those things right. where yeah. you believe into existence. And, and people do have to put in perspective that yeah. our modern-day medicine or doctor's offices, <laughs> right, just simply did not exist. Yeah. So uh, even 100 years ago, they didn't exist um, in the traditional sense. No, no. Uh, it, it, which would lead, especially in poorer communities, yeah. uh, you'd find witch doctors, you know, yeah. for example, and uh, like Henry Imhoff or something. You know? Yeah, and definitely there was like, among like the Pennsylvania Germans, there was like a three-tier system, right? There was the power, and often this was like, it could be a man or a woman, too. It wasn't necessarily just a female witch. I mean, mm. witch, like in the purest anthropological term, could be either, you know. Mm. But uh, the hex doctor was, the hex doctor was somebody in between. They kind of understood the dark magic how to combat it better like if you want to fight a witch you might want the hex doctor to do it but at the same time a lot of people thought they were w- secretly witches too and of course the witch sold their soul to the devil and had power and the witch might do things like steal the milk from your cow they might do that by going to like either take a hair from your cow or um like pick up some of the dung take it back to their house like three miles away wrap it in a uh dish towel throw it over the back of a chair kick a bucket underneath maybe it say something Start milking the dish towel, and the milk will flow from there, and your cow will go dry like three miles away. And that's what they thought how it worked. Um, <clears throat> you might think that sounds crazy, you know, but like there were situational things that happened. Literally, I could talk for six hours on folk um, folk magic and witchcraft. There's so much detail. Well, we're going to have you back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is definitely something that we're going to do again. Oh yeah, yeah. But there's there's just like there's so many layers to it. But there was literally dozens and dozens of cases. Well, if you could, can you try and relate it to today? Because I feel like people think witchcraft. This is crazy that they would do this. But today, I don't think it's much different. The way that some people do certain things, like an herbalist, you know, uh, to extreme sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like the folk healers themselves, I mean, they weren't considered witches. Although the thing is, depends on. It's kind of one of those things. Like depending on where you're standing, right? Someone might accuse a folk healer of being a witch if they think they were personally hexed. Mm-hmm. In fact, the famous hex murder in York County was one powwower killing a hex doctor because he thought he had hexed them, and then hmm. you know he hadn't. But the uh, you know so so sometimes there, there would be there would be issues, but. Yeah, I mean, like compared to today, it's hard, it's hard to necessarily describe. But it, um, you know, th- these practices still continue. I mean, I don't want to compare it to like modern Wicca because that's a little different. I mean, that evolved out of nineteen forties Gardenian stuff with Druids, Druidism in England, and and they kind of have some authentic traditions, but a lot of it's borrowed or kind of reinterpreted. Um, whereas, it, you know, this was, uh, you know, I mean, a way you could think of it. I mean, they thought of it in a very religious context, right? So, say. Um, like, for example, if you're like, if you're Catholic, right, and you use sacramentals, right, or if you carry a, wear a medal or you dip your finger in holy water when you go into church. I mean, that doesn't seem weird. You know, that's the same way they viewed it. And a lot of the stuff they did was just. 
Well, they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just well, that's what they like did. voodoo. You know, it's not yeah. necessarily weird to them. You know, no, like no. it's just what they. You know, yeah. that's their religion. You know, so yeah. And so, like, they carry like paper charms in their pocket for good luck, right? Like a sator square, a Latin palindrome, where they inscribe it on a metal plate, right? And that was like a magic fire extinguisher, right? And so, if wow. there's a fire, you take that plate and toss it in the fire. I mean, the plate actually put the fire out because it's a big metal plate, you know. But, right. but if it was a larger fire, it theoretically should work too. But, um, you know, it's all this, this sense of, uh, you know, kind of exchanging one thing for another and always transferring the evil. You never quite destroy the evil. You just constantly shift it away, you know. Hmm. Interesting. I, there's a, a weird item. Um, it's in the Carnegie Museum. Maybe you've seen it. I'm sure you probably remember on the display. It's this weird, what they call nail fetish. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nakoji Kondo. Yeah, the official name of it, and uh, the story about how they got that item, which is considered a cursed item, yeah. by the way, <laughs> it's in the Carnegie Museum. Uh, it was the 1940s or something like this. Uh, a lady was out in um, I can't remember what African country or, or whatever she was, uh, and was looking for souvenirs. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, there was this thing they called the Nakoji Kondo, which is a nail fetish, which means it's a uh, uh, like a wooden doll. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes with a like a heart inside it or an empty space, people would go with their, um, you know, hex somebody or something like this. They would, you know, basically take a nail and nail it into this thing and the wish it would happen or something like this. Yeah. And apparently the lady uh, was just talking to a local villager and this boy or whatever went back and stole the item from the tribe, yeah. uh, all covered in blood. And they said it yeah. stunk and everything. And they put it in this bathtub or whatever and washed it off. And now it sits in the Carnegie Museum. Wow. <laughs> now I think it's actually not on display anymore, and it's now back in storage. Which who knows yeah. where uh, that might be not a pleasant thing to keep in storage. But yeah. um, uh, these legends and there's hundreds of nails in this thing. I mean, it's not like just one nail. I mean, it's like yeah. a, a widely used thing that people yeah. believed in. Yeah. Um, well, even you know, I have a story from Western PA. It's related to that the, the new book I'm doing, and I've written about it before. This one apprentice of Mulderry, the witch from Fayette County. Um, Hannah Clark uh, forced a man to confess by drawing his picture and driving nails into it. Mm. And slowly she would tap it in further and further. And eventually when he confessed, she just drove him in the rest of the way and he died. But he had killed a peddler down in Fayette County. And so that whole that nail thing, it didn't even, it, you know, it's not even strictly African. It's like almost all folk traditions. And the interesting thing is they all function basically the same way. Uh, like part of this, this, uh, system where where like it's always you know transferring like if you look at who right is that yeah. right, right, right like to your point you know where you're transferring the evil away you know or or into something you know? yeah um that's uh, such fascinating that you think it's just a human condition i think so i mean it, it's really similar in in most cultures at least most western and even like african cultures a lot of it functions very on, on the base like kind of technical level it functions the same way right right um so it's it's fascinating um, I, I find it yeah, yeah. interesting how these traditions continue yeah. And how they just really haven't gone away. Yeah. Well, there's still, I mean, yeah. I, I know Pennsylvania German powwows to this day that still still practice out there in Eastern PA. Wow. Is there anything that really freaks you out? I know you, you talked about a few of them, but is, in your studies, has there been anything that you can't necessarily prove or? Yeah, I'll tell the that something happened to me in 2013. Um, I was in the basement uh, of the, the Homestead Pump House with a, uh, another a ghost hunting group who, who had, I, I'm not a ghost hunter, you know, but I went with this group. The Homestead Pump House is that pump house, and hopefully uh, this doesn't bring, you know, uh, bad press for them or something, but it's it's the uh, it's the last piece of the mill. 
at Homestead down at the waterfront. And so the upstairs is fixed up nice. Sometimes they have like shows and stuff in there. Basement, at least when I was there, it was untouched, right? It was like the, the way it was the day the mill shut down, you know. They had to sign a waiver to go down there. I didn't want to see the inside, you know. I right. wasn't really necessarily uh, there. To, I didn't believe necessarily that we would see anything. Of course, the true story, you know, that you'd be referring to is the Homestead Steel Strike. You know, yes, yeah. Famously so, happened there in 1892. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly where it happened. In fact, right. everybody that died either died in that building or their bodies were dragged where we were ended up standing. We were in the basement with these, and there were, there were only three of us left down there by that point. Initially, there were more of us somewhere upstairs, uh, and they had, they had left. And um, so there were... Uh, Two, these two uh, members of the group and myself, uh, this ghost hunting group. And uh, I had my recorder that I used for oral histories, and, and they had recorders. Um, and we had been there a long time. And, in fact, at one point, you know, not much had happened. You know, this was this old industrial basement. And I've been in tons of those. But after about three hours, I was thinking, man, I wasted Saturday night. So, uh, But we were about to go, and... Um, the guy uh, just kind of speaks out to the air, and I can see both their faces. Uh, he speaks out to the air, and he says, uh, we're going to go now. Is there anything we can do for you before we go? I get that feeling of somebody stepping up right behind me, you know, a feeling when someone's, like, right behind you and you know. And then out loud, like we're speaking now, this voice says, help me. And at first, like, it didn't acknowledge. I'm thinking, like, right. that, that didn't really happen. You know right, what I mean? Right. You're like, you're like, not, you know. But I see their faces, and uh, they're kind of, you know, shocked and then he repeated the question and then once again like right behind my ear i hear just a little bit softer i hear help me so at that point i was kind of freaked out and so i took a step or two away not that that's really going to pr- protect me from the ghost you know <laughs> you take a step or two away and i uh i look back uh, kind of in that direction and i'm like well how can we help you you know and it said i'm cold and uh they kept asking questions for like another hour and nothing else happened. And wow. they, we were basically done. Now, you know, that was pretty weird. I mean, maybe there was a hoax. I don't think it was. Though. These these people were both pretty serious. You know, uh, th- this was all a, like a team of older adults. You know what I mean? Some, I think some had taken classes at Duke's Parapsychology wow. Laboratory at one yeah. point, you know. Um, so like, they were they were as legit as you're going to as you're going to get. And yeah. um, it, it was just a strange, definitely a strange, strange occurrence. That is weird. You know, I think you find um, some of these things in the least likely of places yeah. and uh, or not necessarily where you're looking. Um, these things happen. Uh, like I was uh, I've said before, um, uh, I've had experiences myself. I mean, I did a whole show on it a couple episodes ago where, you know, I've seen shadow men, you know, shadow mm-hmm. people um, and unusual things when I was a kid. Yeah. I had an invisible friend mm-hmm. <laughs> who, uh, by the you know, footnote. I uh, I was telling Andy there was a I had an invisible friend his name was George okay. uh, he was a little boy and uh, my age I guess I was five years old or something mm-hmm. except he had a body of a person in the head of a crocodile <laughs> um, I didn't really think anything of it I thought it was like a very cool thing yeah. however um, I, I was on a different podcast uh, Ghoul on Ghoul by the way so mm-hmm. if you listen to that <laughs> you know but anyways the uh, I talked about uh, that and they said did you ever think it was like some kind of Egyptian yeah, they, thing and I'm like, no, you know. So I start looking it up, and sure enough, there is a Egyptian god named Sobek. Yeah, the crocodile headed god. Was the crocodile yeah. headed god? Yeah. So was I an invisible friend, or was I invisible <laughs> by this ancient Egyptian god? You know, of so that really kind of made me think twice. You know, because that, that's unusual. Um, 
so yeah, there's plenty of things that you can't really explain. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that uh, you just, I guess, have to take it on face value, you know, for what it is that uh, the unexplained. Yeah. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the unexplained. I mean, that's oh. the one thing I, I have to stress to people. People do think you're dabbling in, you know, occultism per se, and you are somewhat in certain cases, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're not, people aren't performing rituals. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Performing, <laughs> yeah, there's no sac- human sacrifices involved. I mean, yeah. You're and, just kind of just explaining what people yeah, went like, through. Yeah, it's like yeah. studying it. You know, I mean, that's often what happened. You know, right? I often wonder what people think when I like shop at a bookstore though, and I have all these books on weird, weird. <laughs> right. It's like academic interest, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Like, that's one yeah, of the yeah. things that, and not to disparage any religion, but I was at a um, Christian type uh, ret- uh, retreat back in high school. And on my way back, we were in a van, and I was talking about how I had a great time and how I was hoping to read more about that religion and that sect of Christianity and how I was excited to read more about Buddhism and maybe a little bit about, like, even Satanism and, like, mm. what that meant. And the religious leaders were saying, oh, no, don't do that. Was like, I'm sorry, what? what? They're like, oh, you don't need to read about that. Yeah, comparative yeah. religion is healthy for everyone's mind, you know, yeah. and it should be sought out uh, to make before you make your final decision and not just blindly go about the same thing that your parents went by, you know. I mean, like, seek out for yourself, be an individual, you know. But uh, the the quest for the unknown and the supernatural is, is kind of what leads us uh, not astray, you know, but it, it leads us to answer questions uh, or seek the answer to questions which can't be really answered. Yeah. And, you know, by doing a, a, a paranormal investigation, you know, you're seeking for the truth or the evidence of the afterlife, you know, after all, mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And uh, but see where you go into more the the, the legends and the folklore behind it and not so much yeah. the, you know, these religious, you know, looking yeah. for the afterlife type yeah. of things. Yeah, you know, this is more like what are the facts? You know, was there an actual accident? You know, how do these things evolve? And what's the cause and effect of these things? And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, every legend, you know, even if it, whether the thing's haunted or not, there's still a story to tell with every ghost story and every legend. There's always a story behind it, you know. Mm-hmm. And there, maybe there's something supernatural, maybe there's not, but there's always something to be learned. Yeah, like uh, the green man, yeah. you know. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the legend attached to a real man, Yeah, you know, and how it could actually um, but keep his memory alive, Yeah, yeah. in essence, you know, so you don't forget about him. And that's really what it's all about. I mean, that's the theme of my life is to not forget about people yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and by talking about them or, you know, just for five minutes, you know, you could somehow bring them back to life just for five minutes. Well, I think it's important to see that you don't, if somebody sees a ghost, you don't dismiss them right, right away. And if somebody, you know, doesn't see a ghost, you also don't dismiss them. You kind of take both of their stories. Oh, hey, you know, uh, the, yeah. it goes all back to the Holy Ghost, right? You know, and, and, and you know, is, is the belief in in something else other than ourselves yeah. has always been there in all religions and all cultures. And it's something we all technically universally share, and not to be necessarily afraid of, but yeah. something that we can embrace the unknown to, to help us seek the answers and uh, to everything, you know? <laughs> and it's not... Uh, I know it's not very Halloweeny, you know, but uh, or or necessarily, you know, it's a scary story. But that's the importance. And we've talked together before, and we've had group talks, you know, yeah. and, uh, and that's kind of what it really stems down to is the philosophy behind why you believe in something and and yeah. and um, the both positive and negative effects of those things. And uh, Halloween's the perfect time to really 
explore these things. Yeah, that's everything about Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, they say it's a pagan holiday, but it's also been kind of taken by Catholicism, too, because after All you know, Halloween, there's All Saints Day or All Souls Day. Right. Yeah, so it's uh, it's why I love Halloween. Yeah, I love <laughs> you know? Halloween. yeah, because it's like just that. Not only the, the weather and everything that goes along with it, and the candy. We're we're honoring the dead, you know. Now, granted, yeah, they're also you know, not a devil's to, holiday. Well, I mean, in, well, in theory, yeah, a little you know, bit. <laughs> like you're you're dressing up for a reason, you know. And the, we could get into that, but we don't have enough time um, of why you wear a mask or why you dress up like the devil or a witch or a ghost, you know. Um, is the you know these types of things why do we wear masks there's a variety see the thing is it's changed over time too right so like at one point the masks were to scare away the other spirits walking around uh, at one point like in england you know it was like guy Fawkes day you know so they'd wear masks to you know and that actually was a very anti-catholic holiday where it was like, <laughs> right. after, after the november yeah after right. november and they all kind of got merged i mean halloween's multiple things all all kind of pushed together and it's really a thoroughly people don't realize how americanized it is i mean halloween in in Northern Ireland is a little different than Halloween in, you know, other places and Halloween's, in, but Halloween as we think of it, you know, I mean, you mentioned Mexico, the, the Day of the Dead, but, you know, Halloween as we think of it, it's like really Americanized, where we take all the pieces from all these different traditions and bring them together. Um, Which makes it purely yeah, American, yeah. because well, that's how we yeah. are. And, and it lets you yeah. be, the thing with Halloween is, you know, it lets you escape and be something else for a day, mm-hmm. you know. And that's it. Let's you see it in a different way or be something else. And be a little, like, yeah. you know, spooked about yeah. something. You know, watch a scary movie. And oh, yeah. Fear be, is a good thing. You know, it's good to be, you know, it strengthens your uh, your juices. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is the best yeah. way to put it, you know. So, I, I mean, I keep you here all night, you know. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk about more history things, you know, next time too as well. But uh, I want to thank you. Yeah, um, sure. Thanks. You are an inspiration, oh, well, whether you realize you. it or yeah, not, yeah. you know. And you. I've talked to students of yours that you might not even know, you know, who have, said hey do you know you know this guy he's like you know i'm like yeah i do <laughs> you know so keep up That's the good, good work man yeah, you know well, thanks yeah and uh we end every episode uh with saying uh if you would like to do the honors that's it for pit